The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hyrick, a cross-asset reporter, also at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, this was a monumental week because it marked the point where the U.S. stock market actually doubled from the pandemic lows of 2020, at least if you're looking at the main benchmark, the S&P 500. But what does that mean going forward? Have easy gains already been made and are, are we due for a rough patch next year? We'll get into it with the co-chief investment strategist at a major asset management firm. And uh, Viltana, I got to tell you, I'm very excited this week. Um, I'm excited most weeks for the podcast, I got to say. I'm, I'm very easily excitable, but I'm especially excited this week because we got a call, a voicemail to the Bloomberg podcast hotline. Now, granted, it was someone who works for Bloomberg, so the call literally was coming from inside the house, but it, it still counts, and I'm, I'm very excited. And that that's... Sort of a reminder to me that I have not been reminding people to call the hotline. So uh, hopefully you're more organized than me and have the number handy. What is what is the hotline number, Vildana? This is a quiz. This is a test for you. I'm way more organized than you. And thankfully, I have it on hand. So if anybody has a craziest thing that they saw internally from Bloomberg or fans outside of Bloomberg, uh, you can give us a call at 646-324-3490. And we may even play the voicemail on the show. Great. And you know what? I'm going to start with a crazy thing. It's not market related, but I've just been informed that our guest this week is up north of Boston, where they're actually getting tornado warnings, which I did not think Boston was a a very tornado prone place. But tell us about that. Our guest this week, her name is Emily R. Rowland. She's the co-chief investment strategist at John Hancock Investment Management. Emily, are you in a a bunker right now, a shelter? What's going on? I'm worried about you. This podcast is far too important for me to be sheltering from this tornado. <laughs> I'm willing to be blown over uh, for Bloomberg. But yeah, we're we're in a tornado watch right now. It looks like the weather is starting to improve. So we should be in pretty good shape here. I've assuaged the children's fears and I think we everybody should be OK. All right. Good. Good to know. If if you if your screen suddenly goes dark, I'm going to I don't know what we'll send Valdana up to, to dig you out. Is that all right with you, Valdana? Happy to help. <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't come to that. <laughs> it's a crazy year for weather, though. We had a bunch of tornadoes in New Jersey. I don't remember that before. I know you had one. Your parents had one near Trenton. Very strange year for weather. But hopefully uh, once the summer is over, we'll get back to normal. But. But Emily, let's get to that market discussion. You know, someone pointed out to me uh, this week. Um, it's kind of hard to believe, but the U.S. stock market, at least looking at the S&P 500, has doubled uh, since the pandemic lows, which, you know, we all sat here on our screens watching it happen. So I don't know why it should be such a surprise or shock to me. But I think when you hit that milestone of a doubled market, it's it's a good time to reflect and just sort of get your take on, 
you know, what did we learn? What did, did you learn anything that you didn't know about the market in the past year? I, I'm not sure anyone really would have guessed we'd see the market double from the lows if, if you took a time machine back to March of 2020. But what's your takeaway about just sort of this crazy rally we've seen in equities? Um, and, and are there any lessons that we should sort of stow away for the future from this? Yeah, I mean, I think the lesson learned is if you want to stimulate the stock market, spend about 50% of GDP on fiscal stimulus and have the Fed double the size of their balance sheet in pretty short order. Uh, so certainly those have been the two biggest tailwinds for the market since the March 23rd low of last year. And I think one of the most interesting and notable things about this bull market that's been unfolding is that it's made of Teflon. There have not been any corrections really to speak of or drawdowns of more than 5%. The dip buyers have come out in full force. Now, usually when we look at previous bull markets coming off of bear market lows, year two is a lot harder than year one. So when year one, we see this meaningful asset appreciation, we see basically the rally in everything, any type of risk you want to take is rewarded. Typically in year two, markets become a bit more choppy. And certainly we saw that after 08 and 09, where we saw a big 20% correction coming into year two of that, of that bull market. And this time we simply have not seen the volatility. So markets are looking past it. We've got easy central banks still in place, still fiscal stimulus tailwinds and earnings growth is just going through the roof. So those have been really powerful factors, I think, driving markets higher. And then at the same time, I had a story earlier this week that said options, taper, virus, traders pick their poison. And I am hearing from a lot more people that there's just some worries swirling around. So I'm wondering how you guys are positioning. If you're positioning more defensively, maybe you can tell us a bit more about your strategy. Yeah, I think the spread of the Delta variant has been exacerbating a, a backdrop that was already in place, which is that Economic growth continues to be strong, and we've seen that this week with the leading indicators coming in at 10% growth year over year. That's a great reading, but it's starting to moderate, and it's become clear to us that the peak in the economic data uh, was probably back in April. Now, it's not an extraordinarily bearish message. It can still uh, be a powerful driver for risk assets as the economy continues to improve. Uh, but we are seeing that moderation in growth play out. And what that means to us from an investment positioning standpoint is that it's time to be more thoughtful about what you own. We talked before about kind of the risk everything rally. It didn't ma matter what you bought over the last 12 months or so. Now, as we sort of head into the mid-cycle environment, it becomes harder. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we've been really focused on things like the quality factor. So looking for companies and sectors that have great balance sheets, good return on equity, the ability to maintain margins, uh, regardless of the economic growth backdrop, to us, that's going to be increasingly important. I've been thinking about this analogy, summer's winding down here in Boston. My, my kids were on the swim team this year. Um, they, they, they weren't very good. Um, but I noticed the other day they handed out all the um, the ribbons, right, or the medals that they won in all their swim team races. And I noticed they came home with a bunch of them. I thought, wow, every kid really does get a ribbon. And then I started thinking it's kind of like the market over the last 15 months or so. Everybody gets a ribbon. And I think as we transition into this mid-cycle environment, 
it's going to be more like the Olympics where it's just going to be the best who are really rewarded. So again, that's the reason for the focus on fundamentals and the focus on that quality factor as we evaluate the investment opportunities. Uh, God bless you, Emily. I, uh, thankfully, none of my kids were swimmers, uh, but I know that every swim meet is approximately 37 hours long uh, somehow. somehow. So uh, I'm sure it's been a long summer. And congratulations on the ribbons. I think the, the reason for the many ribbons is there's also about 800 events at every swim meet. So there's plenty of, plenty of chance to, to, uh, to ribbon. I wanted to, I was, I was reading one of your recent uh, pieces of commentary and I, I wanted to uh, ask you about something in it. Um, and you, as you pointed out, you know, this, the fiscal stimulus that's in the rearview mirror, I mean, unprecedented, the 5 trillion, as, as you point out, direct payments, you know, what, what they used to call helicopter money, basically. And um, yes, we've got some more coming uh, from the infrastructure spending bills. I, we don't know exactly how much yet, but there's something in the pipeline um, obviously not going to be as big of a, a, a sort of injection of, of money into the economy as, as we saw last year. But um, um, and you make a good point. You say, uh, you know, this in your note, this stimulus is unlikely to be matched talking about last year's. Um, and if that stimulus that we just did did not create a higher 10 year Treasury yield, it is unlikely that a smaller package that is less direct in dissemination into the economy creates a meaningful higher yield uh, than where we are. I th- you know, from sort of the supply of treasuries, that that makes sense to me. But I do wonder about the other side of the ledger with, you know, who's buying the treasuries. We, we have the Fed buying 80 billion a month in treasuries, 40 billion in mortgage-backed securities. Uh, the, the tapering, the time to talk about talking about tapering is over. And now I think it's the time to actually start tapering very soon. Um, if you listen to James Bullard of the Fed this week, uh, he said, and I don't know if this is just sort of bravado talk, but he he said he wants the tapering to be finished by the end of the first quarter of next year, which would imply a, a very aggressive uh, pace of tapering, at least compared to the last time uh, they tried to get out, out from under QE and which you know famously caused the, the taper tantrum. So I wonder, you know, I, I guess there's two ways it could play out. You know, you remove this huge buyer from the Treasury market in the Fed. Um, and my first instinct would be, well, obviously, yields are going to go higher. But then, you know, on the second thought, it's like, well, is it going to create this risk off environment where everyone's going to freak out about the tapering? And is that actually going to cause people to pile back into Treasuries and yields to go lower? So how much does the, the tapering sort of play into your view and yields and, and which side, you know, could, could both of those sort of be true and that we see a spike in yields and then sort of a risk off environment? I don't know. How do you all see it playing out once we do push the button on tapering? Can I just say, yeah. sorry, can I just say, Mike, you get ribbon for longest question in the history of the world? No. Oh, uh, that, that's nothing. Uh, I've had much longer. I was about to say the same thing. And there were so many juicy nuggets and and questions in there. And I think you've hit on something that is so crucial to markets right now, which is, you know, what impact does tapering have? And if you look back at the last two examples when QE ended, so if you look at, you know, QE2, QE3, um, Actually, what happened was that when the Fed started to taper or started, you know, stopped increasing the size of its balance sheets, she, the 10-year Treasury yield actually fell. 
And it's for the exact reason that you pointed out, which is that the Fed's basically removing the punch bowl, which is feeding risk assets and causing investors to want to take more risk. So when the Fed starts to pull the punch bowl away, that creates this risk off environment where investors actually start to embrace treasuries again. So that's one reason we actually see ultimately the path of the 10-year treasury moving lower for here, from here. Another thing to think about, typically what happens in terms of the 10-year treasury is the yield peaks right after a recession. And we saw, a, and that's true if you look back at the last four recessions in the U.S. And so what we saw in terms of a closing uh, yield of 174 on March 31st of this year in our view, it's got to be on the table and in the conversation that that was potentially the peak in the yield of the 10-year treasury. Now, we might see some further backup, maybe an infrastructure package. Personally, I don't think it's going to be potent enough to really accelerate growth. It's going to be spread out over a number of years. Um, it's not going to be done via direct transfer payments or stimulus checks. I think it'll probably be less stimulative. Um, so I just don't see the catalyst to move the 10-year treasury higher from here in a meaningful way. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more. Emily, what about the stock market? Because I was wondering what your playbook might be for Fed tapering. Obviously, this week we had the minutes and they showed that a lot of the officials see a taper potentially starting this year. So what, what will be your playbook for this scenario? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be a risk to the markets. I think the Fed has been so transparent. You know, Powell has been so resolute in his messaging and crystal clear to us that, you know, they're they're very much committed to this average inflation targeting framework. They're very much committed to making substantial progress on their economic goals, you know, letting the jobs market fully heal. We just had two great jobs reports. Is that enough to create this sort of quote unquote uh, string of good economic data that the Fed would like to see? And uh, we're, we're on our way there. So there has been a bit of a shift to a more you know, hawkish approach from the Fed, uh, but it's been well telegraphed. So I think equity markets can handle it. Um, and you know, you've got to remember that as the Fed starts easing up here, that's not a necessarily a bad thing. It means the economy is continuing to heal and it means growth is picking up. Um, so that's a good thing. Um, so I think equity markets could take it in stride. Um, I think, you know, one of the bigger risks that's not being priced into the equity market right now is potential tax increases, particularly on the corporate tax side. Um, you know, markets tend, we, we look at some great uh, research and uh, Dan Clifton over at Strategus Research Partner just put, Partners just put a note out uh, this week that, you know, basically suggests markets worry about higher corporate tax rates when it's time to worry about higher corporate tax rates, meaning that when they're actually kind of, you know, it looks quite likely that they're going to be put in into into law. 
So that might be sometime this fall, and you might see equity markets get a little bit, bit jittery around that as it might knock uh, a, a, you know, maybe 5 or even 10% off that corporate earnings outlook. Uh, so something to think about there in terms of what might create the volatility in the stock market going forward. So is it the the type of scenario that uh, perhaps investors have already priced in uh, to some degree the infrastructure stimulus, but not this notion that we're going to have to go back and and talk about paying for for government spending again and not just run deficits to free fall is you know sort of a two sided coin and and the market is only looking at one at this point. I think that's right, and you know markets were continuing to hit you know new all time highs recently. We've seen a little bit of choppiness. Um, as of late, but I think right now markets are not thinking about that. They're not anticipating that. Um, they're they're focused on some of these these key tailwinds that continue to exist around reopening, around that strong earnings backdrop, uh, and around continued supportive uh, policy. I covered the Robinhood earnings earlier this week, and essentially they said that retail mania is cooling. I think they warned about seasonal headwinds. So I'm wondering if you agree with that and what it means for markets. So we look at the activity in in retail trading, particularly around the meme stocks, as our kind of gauge of sentiment, of market sentiment. And when you start to see these pockets of frothiness or these pockets of speculation building in the market, you know, that's a that's a notch against wanting to embrace equities. Uh, so when we start to see some of that sentiment cool, you know, we, we also watch things like cryptocurrencies is another sort of sentiment indicator. When that starts to cool, to us, that's a sign that, you know, potentially this equity market actually has more legs and sentiment is not moving against it. So we still want to own equities here. And I'm not totally upset about the fact that, you know, maybe some of that frenzy in retail spending is starting to cool. Hey, maybe people are just getting back to work. Um, you know, we know some of the um, some of the uh, st- uh, additional jobless benefits are starting to expire in many states. Or maybe people are getting back to school. I can tell you that my 11 year old begged me if he could open up a Robinhood account so he could start trading using his hundred dollars from his first communion money. Uh, so now that he's getting back into the classroom, maybe his interest in a day trading is starting to uh, uh, subside here. Something to think about. Oh boy, eleven years old and, and wants to open the Robin. I, I had my seventeen-year-old uh, wanted to open one, and I, I thought that was young, but eleven. Boy, I'd love to know the stock picks of your eleven-year-old sometime, though. Did, did you can? They... I think you can guess. You can guess <laughs> anything that's wildly risky. And, and by the way, his—I realized this the other day. You know, his entire experience with investing, which started in the beginning of the lockdowns, involves every everything going up. So he hasn't had the experience that the rest of us have had in terms of thinking about risk tolerance and trying to figure out how much you can stomach in terms of losses. So I think it's going to be an interesting period for him to to learn and grow. But speaking of that as well, we were looking at some data that was showing uh, cash is actually slowly starting to build up in portfolios and potentially, as you said, some of that euphoric buying from earlier in the year is potentially fading Away. So, what would that mean for for markets? What what do we make of the idea that potentially we don't have the buy the dip mentality anymore going forward? 
Yeah, we are seeing, if you look at the, the fund flow data, I think it's a great point, Valdana, because you're seeing investors continue to have a more conservative mindset in terms of where they're investing. We saw money market balances um, hit something like $6 trillion at the height of the pandemic. That they started to come back down again, which they typically do coming out of an election, coming out of a recession. But we've actually started to see the interest in money market funds go back up. The number one asset gathering category um, is tax-free bonds. And as we know, that's a huge challenge right now in terms of finding a way to generate yield in an environment which yields are extraordinarily low. And in our view, they're probably going to stay that way. Um, You know, we don't see the Fed going anywhere. We think they're going to have a really hard time raising rates as the yield curve is actually flattening right now. The Fed doesn't want to risk raising rates into potentially an an inverting yield curve. Uh, So as we watch this investor behavior of of looking to money market funds, looking to bond strategies, we've got to be really careful here about the approach to risk while still giving investors the ability to generate yield. So for us, the sweet spot really has been going into investment-grade corporate bonds, looking at the higher rungs of the high-yield bond market, the double Bs that have the ability to be upgraded as this economic recovery continues to unfold. And look, every little bit counts in terms of generating yield right now. So when we put a, you know, a potential portfolio together, we're trying to get to something like 2 or 3%. I know it doesn't sound exciting. Fixed income is not always exciting. Um, but we're looking at that without going over our skis too much and taking risk within fixed income and not getting ourselves overexposed to just plain old equity market risk. So when you look at the lower rungs of the high-yield bond market, that's really what you're getting. So it's this combination of investment-grade corporate bonds, uh, high-yield bonds, and then still an allocation to higher-quality bonds to protect during those periods where you know, equity market volatility rears its ugly head. I don't know if you can get it to two or 3%. That's pretty exciting these days, Emily. If you can denominate that in euros, I think you'll have a lot of people knocking on your door, especially to, uh, to, to get on that. But um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, and uh, Voldana and her colleagues uh, recently wrote about this. Um, Katie Greifeld, one of our colleagues, especially, I, I think, wrote about this dirty word that I... I I got to say, earlier in the year, I was afraid to even say this word out loud. I was afraid I would get chased off of uh, the Zoom call or wherever I was speaking. But the the notion of stagflation, and I think you know, earlier in the year, it seemed like such a ridiculous sort of tail risk to worry about because the the everyone assumed the GDP growth would just be off the charts as everyone got vaccinated and and got back to the world. And I'm, I'm, I'm winding up here. I'm like a, a supervillain here in a movie. I'm, I'm monologuing a little bit here, but, but bear with me. I'll get to the question eventually. But, you know, you look now and, okay, everyone is still sort of confident that the Fed's right, inflation's transitory. I don't know if they're as confident as they were about that. Um, and at the same time, you know, this Delta variant is unlikely to cause sort of these draconian lockdown measures that, we saw last year. I don't think anyone in the country uh, or in the world really has the stomach or sort of the political goodwill to, to be able to pull that off. That said, I know, you know, you wonder if people are, are just sort of self-imposed going to start thinking twice about taking a trip or uh, going out to eat or, or just, you know, doing anything in, in a crowd. 
Um, and at the same time, you, you look over in China and, and you see like uh, part of a port's being shut down uh, because of one case of COVID causing uh, these bottlenecks that we had hoped would be alleviated by now to sort of be, a, be another risk to the supply chain. Um, if that sort of situation should be repeated, I know there's some some factories in, in uh, Asia that have closed down already, you know, some Samsung uh, plants and stuff like that. So. Where do you put stagflation as sort of a market risk right now? Is it a, a very thin tail risk or, you know, is it a is the tail risk that's getting fatter? What, what's your take? You know, a few months ago, I would have said it's it's highly unlikely. I think now it's it's on the table as a risk for a lot of the reasons that you pointed out. We've now got supply chain disruptions um, that are probably going to be extended or they're already extended. You look at the shortage in chips that continues to uh, impact uh, automakers. You look at this shutdown of these ports and the, the lines of, of, of cargo ships outside this Los Angeles shipping terminals. Um, you know, all of this is, is certainly, um, you know, a, a big challenge to the narrative that inflation is transitory. You also see areas like shelter, which is a third of, of CPI, which is showing some stickiness in terms of rents uh, moving higher. Certainly wage growth, another component um, it's awfully hard for companies to lure in workers by offering higher wages and then lower them. Uh, you know, that's not going to happen. And by the way, that's not totally bad news. It's clearly good for the consumer, particularly if, if goods inflation starts to moderate, wage inflation is elevated, uh, that, that contributes to a strengthening consumer, which we know is going to be critical to the, the economic recovery. Um, we also see, you know, consumers starting to, in a way, sort of protest higher prices. You know, you're seeing some dents in the housing market now as, as uh, housing becomes unaffordable. Uh, you're seeing investors put off purchases of, of areas that are uh, seeing uh, higher prices. Um, and then, of course, the Delta variant, we're seeing that impact all this high frequency data that I never would have guessed a couple of years ago, I would be looking at things like TSA checkpoint numbers and open table uh, reservations. They haven't rolled off, but they're starting to level out. So it's an indication that, you know, maybe this period of uh, uncertainty is prolonged uh, a bit and that could ultimately translate into inflation. You know, no one's defined transitory yet. I don't know what it means. The Fed really hasn't said, you know, what it means. So potentially it lasts a little bit longer. But our base case is that you see inflationary pressures wane as we head into 2022. And one of the key reasons for that um, is that there's some powerful disinflationary forces that we think should reassert themselves. Uh, technology being the number one thing. Uh, the more improvements you make in efficiency using technology, that pushes down inflationary pressures. And that's the reason that my entire career, I've listened to investors start to position for higher inflation. And guess what? It never pans out, right? Because technology is such a wildly disinflationary force. You also start to see the base effects, which were your best friend over the last uh, number of quarters here, become your worst enemy as you head into 2022. So the math starts to work in the opposite direction, um, where the comps are actually much higher uh, as we head into uh, 2022. And it's likely to see, uh, we're likely to see lower uh, readings uh, next year because of that. So maybe lasts a little bit longer than anticipated, but we still believe that uh, into 2022, we should see these pressures uh, start to moderate. Emily, if we think about all of these things that we just talked about, is it is that 
one of the reasons that it's been a bit more difficult to make judgment calls on a lot of things. I know there was a Bank of America note that said 10-year yields could either be sliding below 1% by year end, or they could be surging as high as 2%, which is just a huge gap. And so uh, what? how difficult is it to, to be making projections right now? It's incredibly difficult because we've never done this before. Like, think about it. We figured out how to generate inflation, right? You pour $5 trillion into the economy and the Fed just buys, 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 right? We figured it out. We don't know yet how you get out of it in a clean, soft, soft landing type way. So I think that that's the biggest challenge here. We can look at history, but we've never had an environment in which a global economy is completely shut down and come back. We've never had a recession that lasted a total of two months. So this market cycle is happening at warp speed, which is one of the reasons that that it becomes so challenging to navigate these markets. I think what's important to do is maintain that balanced approach, uh, but look under the hood uh, for where the opportunities are. So looking at areas like U.S. mid-cap equities, which we think are the right mix of offense in a portfolio without going over your skis and taking risk. Uh, They have an overweight to areas like industrials, which we think should benefit from things like infrastructure spending as the economy reopens, CapEx, productivity gains. You want to look at the U.S. quality factor, again, for those strong fundamentals and great balance sheets. You want to have a little bit of value in there. Uh, But, you know, I think that this sort of, you know, easy gains happened starting in the fourth quarter of last year. So you want to be thoughtful about how you approach value. It's less about the highly cyclical, highest beta sectors and more about looking at areas like healthcare um, that are trading cheap relative to the broad market and have those quality elements that that we really are focused on right now. So it's really becoming more and more important to make those decisions within your equity bucket um, as we head forward. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Well, Emily, as you said, it's a challenging time, a difficult time to make projections. It's also difficult to top Phil Donna when it comes to the craziest things in markets in the past week in our weekly uh, tradition here. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. I'll give you a fair warning. Vildana brings an A game to this. But before we before we hear hers, I want to hear that voicemail we got in. I got a sneak peek of it. So, uh, Emily, I'm curious if you have some thoughts on this. So l- listen up. It's a good one. Hey, guys. It's Felice Morantz from Bloomberg Markets Live. The craziest thing I saw this week was Palantir buying $50 million worth of gold bars. When's the last time you saw a big tech company buying the lowest tech thing, gold, that there is? It seems like 
a really interesting way for them to invest their cash. Maybe there's something that the Peter Thiel-backed company knows that the rest of us doesn't know, especially since they're one of the world's biggest data miners. You know, Emily, this this sounds like the flip side of the coin to like MicroStrategy or, or Tesla putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So, someone actually putting gold. I don't think I've ever heard of this as like a cash management uh, uh, solution. Have you ever heard of a company with just, you know, keeping their cash in gold? It's it's bizarre. That's so funny. I was thinking the exact same thing when I heard that about about uh, uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, no, I haven't. And, you know, I, I think in terms of gold, you know, it's it's lost its its luster here, you know, to us. And certainly as of late, you know, what what gold typically needs in order to outperform or to perform well here uh, is a weaker dollar and, and higher inflation. So while it might be kind of a, a potential play on some of those macro forces here over the short term, uh, I think there's much better options out there for for this company, for sure. Yeah, it's a it's an unusual scenario we have now where we have uh, high inflation and a strong dollar. I, it, that's a that's a tricky one. Not some not something you see in the textbooks very often. But Vildana, um, let's go with you because I know you got something good for us. What's the craziest thing you saw this week? I do. If you remember, a couple of days ago, there was a huge hack of one of the cryptocurrency DeFi platforms. It was one of the biggest in the space, and so earlier this week. One of our colleagues, Ola Karev, reported that the platform, Poly Network, uh, the one that got hacked, ended up offering a job to the hacker. And they are offering him chief security advisor. That would be his. I'm assuming it's a he. That would be his, his role. That's a which good is, one. Which That's is a pretty good one. so interesting because apparently this hacker has been returning some of the money he or she, I should say, had hacked yeah. and and now uh, also has a job offer from the company that they a, hacked. A white hat hacker, as they say, who uh, and I've read some interesting stuff about it. He I guess the goal is, you know, he wants to sort of solve these crypto problems so that the whole uh, industry does not get get tarred and feathered because of them. Pretty, pretty interesting stuff. That's pretty good. Emily, I don't know. Do you have anything crazy for us this week? You know what? I kind of got a heads up that this might be a question, and I was thinking about it in a way too uh, studious and serious way. I think so. <laughs> maybe okay. if you had, maybe if you have me back on, I'll try to think of something more fun. But I think one of the most you know notable dynamics that's played out this week is just the continued pressure that we've seen in in Chinese equities, and in particular some of the the tech names. And I think it's so interesting, and I guess weird. Because coming into this year, I think we can all agree that one of the biggest consensus calls among investors was to be overweight emerging market equities. Um, And I think that kind of went hand in hand with, you know, weaker dollar, higher commodity prices. You know, I'm naming like a handful of, you know, pain trades that we've seen play out over the course of the year. And when we actually came into the, the third quarter um, we had we downgraded emerging market equities, and this was before some of these regulatory challenges emerged. Um, just on slowing growth, um, we noted that you know Chinese policymakers were starting to take their foot off the gas in terms of fiscal stimulus. So that sort of credit impulse had begun to roll over in China, and we started to see PMIs, while still elevated above fifty, you know decelerating. So we decided to take some chips off the table 
in emerging market equities, of course, now I wish we had gone more negative on them. Um, but we did up our exposure uh, to Europe with those uh, uh, proceeds based on a better economic growth uh, trajectory and backdrop there. So I think a big challenge there for uh, investors, um, and we're seeing some of those Chinese internet ETFs, uh, the dip buying has has seized, has uh, been put on pause over the last uh, few days. So no longer sort of seeing that bid there uh, from investors. So tough, tough, tough times uh, in that part of the market for sure. Yeah, you know, and it's it's interesting to see it because of sort of such a self-inflicted type of situation, you know, China really causing all this on its own. But I guess, you know, uh, someone pointed out to me, well, uh, Xi Jinping has his sort of left flank of the political party that he has to deal with as well. So not too dissimilar to the U.S. And they've got a big, uh, big political reshuffling coming up. Uh, I think it's either next year or the following year. So um, politics, politics is always the wild card risk factor, I guess. But. All right. I'm going to dip again, as I like to do, into the alternative asset class. And I really mean it when I say alternative this time. Collectible bathing suits. Who knew there was such a thing as collectible bathing suits? But a a funny story uh, from Britain's Telegraph about some of the mostly James Bond movies. Apparently, the bathing suits in the James Bond movies are pretty hot, but some other movies, too. So I'm going to put you both on the spot here. I'm going to tell you some of the Famous bathing suits that have gone up for auction. And you tell me, you, I want to hear both of you tell me which one you think sold for the, the most. One was the, the James Bond movie, Dr. No. That's one of the early ones from the 60s, I guess. Uh, the actress Ursula Andress had a white bikini uh, that went up and sold at auction at Christie's last year. So that's one of them. For the menswear category, we've got the infamous pair of navy and powder blue shorts, size large and made in Italy by La Perla, worn by Daniel Craig in 2006's Casino Casino Royale. And they were actually a tribute to that actress uh, from Dr. No. So they went up for sale. Now, finally, we've got uh, Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia bikini worn in Return of the Jedi. Valdana's rolling her eyes here. I, I I don't no, think that's seen, the obvious answer. I don't yeah. think she's seen any of these movies. So all right. I've seen so, all of them. It's it's the Princess Leia one. So you're going Princess Leia. You just have that much faith in the in the Star Wars faithful. Oh, out for there. sure. And I love Baby Yoda too. All the offshoots and everything. All right, Baby Yoda. Emily, you're agreeing. You're going with Princess Leia as the. I think that's got to be it. I, I I will say that if I were in your shoes, I would have agreed with both of you guys. I would have thought that would have been the one. Those Star Star Wars nerds are something else. But well, tell me this: What do you guys think the highest price of all those three? What 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 do you think Princess Leia's bikini fetched? Uh, Crickets, because uh, we have no idea. <laughs> like a uh, hundred thousand dollars. I would guess that too, but I'm going to go with $101,000. Emily, you're pretty good at bathing suit valuations here. I don't know. I, that, that that was pretty close to on the nose. 96,000. So oh. we're 63,000 British pounds. That, however, was not the highest priced bathing suit of this list. Uh, the Daniel Craig uh, blue and white trunks, they sold for 44,000 uh, 44, pounds, roughly. However, the Dr. No Ursula Andress white bikini, 360,000 pounds at auction uh, last year. I, I can't explain it. I would have gone with Princess Leia myself, too. Good one. Well, what would make that one more valuable, did it say? I don't know. Maybe it's the oldest. Um, 
possibly, but I, you know, I don't know. I still would have gone with the star, the star Wars. Uh, so it's more uh, vintage as they would say. It's in, more vintage. In maybe, maybe it's more, it's timeless. It's a white bikini. I mean, you know, it never goes out of style. I don't know. Uh, Emily, really appreciate your time. Uh, enjoyed the discussion. Hopefully we can get you back again sometime in the future. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Emily. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forehez. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.